Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. You can find the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and TuneIn Radio. Depending on how you look at it, joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line is either nobody, a dozen different guests, or approximately a hundred. It's the last NHTE episode being released in 2017, and we just passed a new plateau with Milestone episode 200 just a couple weeks ago. So this seems a perfect time to look back on the second 100 episodes that we did, just like back on episode 101, when we released a best of from the first 100 shows. A lot of great clips have been picked out for this episode, but I first have to thank both the guests that have come on NHTE over the last 100 episodes, not to mention the first 100 episodes, but definitely all of you who listen to the show. We are up to 132 countries around the world where this show has gotten listeners from, and I am so, so grateful for everyone who listens, everyone who engages with our social media, everyone who emails in, everyone who supports our Patreon campaign. It just all really, really means a lot to me and is why we keep the show going every week now for what will be four years, just under two months from now. So let's get into this best of episode, starting with a look back at episode 110, when my guest was Megan Lindsay, who I introduced then as having been, quote, the runner-up last season on The Voice, end quote. Following that run, her EP called Believer debuted at number six on the iTunes pop chart, but here on NHTE, she talked about when she was first getting started, having just moved to Nashville. I think you have, you know, wide eyes and big dreams when you're, you know, really young. And I I'm, I started coming to Nashville when I was 15 and writing songs. And, you know, of course, I thought I would be famous by the time I was 18. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, you, you learn really quickly how hard it is. And it, and it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with talent, you know, Um I mean, obviously that's a part of it and I've worked really hard on my craft, but I think so much of it is just the work ethic that you put in and, and, um, having a plan and having a solid team. And so I, um, when I moved at 18, I didn't know all of that. And so I think I, Mm. it, it was, it's been a real learning curve for me the last, I've been in Nashville for 12 years now and just the ups and downs and the figuring it out and finding out who I am and who I am as an artist and, and really, um, being able to put all the pieces together has been quite a um it's been quite a ride you know we move ahead to just over a month later and episode 115 of now hear this entertainment and all the way to the pacific northwest with a duo called gypsy soul out of oregon they are silette swan and roman morricutt she is canadian he is british and at the time the duo had released 13 cds they had gotten radio airplay and tv and film placements and won numerous awards, plus they have been on the Grammy ballot, they lent some interesting insights into their songwriting process. Really, the inspirations come from everywhere, and we don't put restrictions on ourselves as far as, oh, this might not be appropriate. I think music helps people to really um, 
get to the essence of their own emotions about certain subjects and if we can participate in that yes, through music a, you know it can be a gateway i think and i think a lot of people unfortunately a lot of songwriters do play it a little too safe oftentimes and we've lost i think um you know the the classic 60s and 70s protest songs i think those mm. are not as as prevalent as they used to be and that's i think that's the job of of artists is to comment on things that are going on in the world and uh, get people to think about them. Just a couple weeks after that, three to be exact, episode 118 featured my interview with Tim Zack, who fronts a group in Nebraska called Whiskey Bent, who had opened for Leonard Skinner a few months earlier. I really felt like he brought hope to aspiring performers because he talked about not being another case of someone who started singing coming out of the womb and playing an instrument at a very early age. In my early twenties, I always thought, you know, yeah, you know, I'd love to, do, I'd love to, to do that. You know, the, I think everybody at some point in their life has the, you know, the rock star dream. You know, that you know, the little kid. I mean, I've got a three-year-old at home who is strumming, you know, his fake guitar and, <laughs> you know, doing, doing the things that you know he sees dad do now. You know, to be honest with you, as a singer, um, at, at that point, I mean, I, I was twenty-nine years old when when I did the Golden Country Showdown and I got my start. When I was 28 years old, I didn't know what a G chord was. Wow. I mean, I could, wow. I could not play. I, I mean, I I could not play a G chord when I was 28 years old. And the the thing about, especially being around here, is everybody, I mean, you know, everybody thinks they can sing. So, I mean, <laughs> when you're approaching musicians to try and put a band together, um, it, you call up to some guy, you say, Hey, I hear you play guitar. I, I'm a singer. I want to get a band together. The first thing they're going to ask you is what you play. Well, at that point I didn't play anything. Mm. I'm a singer. Well, no one wants, you know, that's just dead weight to people. Unless you're phenomenal as a singer, you need to be able to play something too, you know? Um, so it's hard to get guys to work with somebody that just sings. Yeah. They, um, they because don't buy the with, line that my voice is my instrument. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, when I did the Colgate Country Showdown, that basically, I mean, that really did a lot for me because it gave me some credibility. So when I was going to these people uh. and trying to get something going, Hey, you know, I'm not just the guy that thinks he can sing, you know, so look at this, this is what I've done. Mm. Um, and I think we can, you know, get something going. And, and, you know, there was just a, there was a couple guys and, you know, I, I owe a lot of my success to the guys like Jeff and Jeff and, and, you know, Joe and Greg and the other guys, you know, I used to play with to, you know, take a chance on, you know, somebody like me that, that didn't play the guitar, sang and was willing to learn because I mean, now I, I play now. I'm, I don't consider myself a, a, uh, you know, like a, a lead guitarist or, 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 or even a good guitarist for that matter. I mean, I, <laughs> I can sing along and strum the chords to make the song happen. Um, <laughs> But that's why I've got, you know, Jeff and Joe and those guys are great guitar players. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, you know, Tim, I, I think what I really like most about your story is that it gives people hope because the music industry has kind of dictated that they're starting so, so, so much younger today. And they're looking at 14 year olds and 15 year olds and, and trying to go, go all in with these people. So when you do hit 21, 22 years old, people are telling you, 
uh, the clock is ticking, you know, or, or sometimes I'll even say that, you know, that ship has sailed. And so you offer such great hope to people that they can hear your story and say, wait a minute, Tim didn't start until he was 29. And, and now look at where he is. So I can do this after all, even though I'm only, you know, whatever, 24, even though I'm only, you know, I'm already 26, whatever. Right. Right. And, you know, the thing is, I mean, that's the, the biggest thing is that you, if, if you want to do something, don't let anybody stand in your way. You know, just it, you might not, you know, I might never be, you know, where I ultimately like to be, but I'll never look back on my career and say I didn't make it just because, you know, there wasn't a big, you know, milestone in my career that that I, I would have liked to see happen. You know, hopefully that does. And I think I stay grounded that way by, by, you know, taking everything one day at a time. I mean, if you would have asked me four years ago if I thought we would have been opening for Leonard Skinner in an arena, I would have never in a million years. I would have said, you're crazy. <laughs> but, but we've been afforded the opportunities to do that because of we've, we've worked hard. Let's fast forward ahead to episode 129 when I was joined in the studio by Tony Michaelitis, who worked for many, many years in the UK with clients that ranged from REM to The Police to Bob Marley, Matchbox 20, Elvis Costello, and Peter Gabriel, among many others. His career spanned more than 30 years and even included being asked to serve as the publicist for David Bowie's Earthling tour. So needless to say, there was some real good storytelling going on on that episode of NHTE. Well, basically, my story with you two is is kind of I um I worked for Alan Records from seventy eight to eighty. Then we all got made redundant. I was on the road, and Ireland hit some financial difficulties, and they couldn't afford to pay a team on the road. You know, I was doing the radio and TV and press in the northwest of England. I got a job, fortunately, like an hour later with Charisma, working with Peter Gable and Genesis, which were at the time the, the biggest bands I'd worked with, apart from Bob Marley. Um, so when a friend of mine sent me a tape by this band um, and kind of with, the, with the, the idea of me going to see them play in my local polytechnic um, the following week, it was one of those things where he, he was the kind guy that got excitable about a lot of things. So I eventually relented and decided to go. And I went with a local DJ who was living with me at the time. He was my lodger. And we went to see them and they were third on the bill. And this was kind of 1980, I think. And, um, and they weren't kind of that good. I mean, Bonner was kind of awkward and he was swinging from the rafters, which is central eating <laughs> pipes, which are burning hot. Adam looked like a complete dork. Um, Larry was a good solid drummer and the edge was good, you know, but it was kind of like, you know, like Nirvana were in the garage. You shouldn't be very good at that stage in your career, but they mm -hmm. had so much kind of, you know, um, enthusiasm and things. And then they came out at the end of the night when everybody had gone, like midnight or something, to meet every single person who wanted to meet them. And we right. stayed behind to kind of say hi. And they were in awe of us. Oh, my God, the local DJs come to see us. They were really excited and, and stuff and things. But we went home and, and um, we kind of, you know, we woke up in the morning and had some breakfast and we're still kind of thinking, there's something about that band, you know. It's kind of what it is, you know, kind of. And then we continued to talk about them and things. And, and then they, they did actually sign to Ireland, uh, but you two kind of, you know, I mean, there was the December that year, we saw, saw them in the September, I think, the December that year, they played like 10 London shows in 14 days. Wow. So they hadn't really wow. toured or anything. And Bono had even come over to the UK to try and do the rounds of the record companies. So there's a real persistence story about you two, and, and, and nobody wanted to sign them and stuff. But I remember taking them to their first radio station, and, um, you know, they were like 
Bono and the Edge were like these two excitable kids in the back of the car, you know, and, and we were driving in the pouring rain like two hours from station to station to get some little interview that went out on midnight on a Friday <laughs> night to a specialist. You know, they had the specialist radio shows in those days. Um, and I just pulled up and turned the windscreen wipers off for the engine. I just looked back to them and, um, and this is kind of educational for artists. And I looked around and I said, listen, guys, I can get you in here because of who I know. Um, only you can get yourselves back in here because of who you are. Probably two months later, since it was eight episodes later, on episode 137, I talked to Marco Argiro, an interview with some truly international flavor. He plays bass and is the lead vocalist in the rock alternative indie British-American band The Killing Floor, who had showcased at South by Southwest. They were to perform at Indie Week Europe in Manchester, UK, as winners of Indie Week Canada, where they received first place best band honors at the Toronto Festival. They had even played on the Vans Warped Tour, but perhaps the biggest wow was Marco's story about The Killing Floor's first music video being shot with legendary Hollywood director Joel Schumacher. Marco, talk first about that opportunity to have worked with Joel Schumacher, but I'm, I'm also curious if, if you know how the band got the opportunity to work with him. I do actually, because uh, I was the one who um, kind of made that happen. Wow. He, I had met I had met him in in New York um, through some mutual friends, and I you know every now and again when you meet you never know who you're going to meet in these major cities. And I uh, I had handed him a demo of uh, my music and the Killing Floor's music, and he was a fan. And I was always hoping that maybe he would um, maybe put one of our songs in a future film or something. And at a, one of these parties one night, he actually himself and Joel Schumacher is like, how about I just make a video for you instead or whatever? And we're like, wow. uh, yes, okay. Wow. And, and you know, a lot of times you hear a lot of fluff from people and you can meet people and they'll tell you they're going to do this and that for you. So you always have to be kind of weary. But in this case, Joel was uh, seemed pretty sincere. So when it came time to um, planning that video for Star Baby, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to I'm going to call I'm going to call him. You know, why not? So oh, I was like, okay, watch this. Okay. And, I, and I, call, I cold called him. I was like, hey, Joel, you remember that time you uh, you wanted to make a video for us? Well, uh, we're ready to produce the video now. So can we can we count on you? And he was nothing short of an amazing, beautiful wow. man and wow. so helpful and supportive and waived his big Hollywood fee and you know he did it for nothing because he believes in the no band kidding. and believed in us and yeah he's just a sweetheart no he couldn't have been nice and he was just telling you briefly about that day which is magical um I helped produce the video shoot with some good friends uh and our old management company and uh, here in Brooklyn actually and he came on set and just lit it up for everybody everybody was so in awe of this you know, he's just a master of his art and his craft and he couldn't have been a sweeter person. He was he took time to speak with everybody. He wasn't pretentious. He was he's he's exactly what you want out of like your film making heroes, you know. As mentioned in the intro, we did a best of back on episode one oh one, highlighting some of the first hundred shows. There was a rather serious moment on there when we looked back at episode forty one and CJ Watson telling a really heavy but impactful story. And now, similarly, here on episode 203, we're going to look back now at episode 147, when Brielle Von Hugel, who was one of the top 12 girls semi-finalists on season 11 of American Idol, shared this. Growing up, I've dealt with a lot of bullying and, uh, and you know, a lot, especially being on a national 
television show when I was a teenager. Um, but even younger too, I, I've dealt with bullying for my appearance and, and my lifestyle and blah, blah, blah. So I, instead of sulking about it and being sad about it, I want to heal people with my voice and my music and just inspire them to be confident and go after what they love. So my stronger growing pains campaign, my single stronger growing pains, I just wanted people to hear the song and um, share it with people in need of some um, inspiration and influence. And, you know, I just want to be a role model for girls my age and younger, even older. Um, I just want it to be known that no matter what happens in life, there are many obstacles, but you can persevere and stay strong and go after what you love. Just really be focused and humbled and, um, and be you. I want everyone to know that it's okay to be you. I'm really amazed to, to hear you say that, uh, that you were bullied while you were on American Idol. I mean, the, you know, on the surface, the first thing that jumps to my mind is that people were just jealous and, and I, I, I can't understand, um, you know, why being on American Idol would, would lend itself to bullying. I would think that if anything, everybody would want to be your friend. then. (laughs) Thanks, Bruce. (laughs) Well, you know, um, millions of people are watching me from their homes and everybody is entitled to their own opinion. And, you know, yeah, I've had really, really mean blogs written about me and Mm. my family. And, uh, what are you going to do? People could love you. People can hate you, but, uh, you know, that's why I think it's so important that I ha- that you have to stay grounded and uh, realize that um, you're out there doing what you love and they could hate because they're they're just jealous that you're not pursuing your that they're not pursuing their mm, dreams. Yeah. So, you know, just stay focused, well ignore all the negative. By the way, stick around at the end of today's episode for a song that Brielle wrote around this whole topic. Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is never losing sight of the fact that you are a business. What is your plan for the new year? Companies are setting out their plans, they're doing goal setting, and some even bring in trainers or motivational speakers. How about you? What have you put in place so that you know what your goals and objectives are as the calendar turns over? Don't find yourself sitting a year from now feeling that you're no further ahead than you were when the year started. And P.S. Don't call them resolutions. We know all too well how those end up working out. Those are usually personal anyway. Again, you're a business, and these are targets that you're setting for the company that you and your music comprise. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. How about that? Helpful? There are a whole bunch of tips just like that over all the prior episodes of this show. To make it easy for the listeners out there who are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers, to get the tips in one concise format... There is a Bruce's Bonus Book, Volume 1, Volume 2, and Volume 3 for purchase in ebook format, giving you all the tips from Episodes 1 to 40, 41 to 80, and 81 to 120, respectively. Just go to www.brucesbonusbook.com for online ordering and instant delivery. 
We're halfway through this episode, and we're halfway through the second hundred episodes because we're going to land now directly on episode 150 when my guest was Mike Del Judas, who plays guitar and does vocals on tour with Billy Joel, even though he never saw it coming despite the huge, huge success of his Billy Joel cover band. To be honest with you, I mean, I'm being 100% honest right now. I mean, the, the dream is I'm a songwriter. Would it be great one day to maybe picture myself having my own career, opening up for Billy maybe, or, you know, yeah, uh, yeah but no, but still no. Like, you know, I'm doing a tribute band. What the hell could he possibly need me for? He's, he's alive. Wow. You know, he's alive already. Yeah. He's still there. So it's not like it's a journey situation where, you know, Steve couldn't do it anymore yeah. and they hire our, they hire Arnell to come in and do it. It's, you know, Billy's still around. Why would I think what would, you know, I, I never would have imagined that, uh, I'd be in his band. Like it, it just, it was very, very strange the way it all happened. And, and I always attribute that to God. And I always say God's plans of, you know, for me have always been way higher than what I could have ever dreamed or imagined. And, and I never see whenever God does something or whenever the universe, let's say of people that don't believe in God, Whatever the universe does something, it's it's never something you see coming. Amen. It's never, you know, it just always seems to be like, whoa, where did that come from? And that was, wow, I didn't. And, but then when you look back in retrospect, you can really see how it was coming together. But during the process of it, you don't see it. You don't, uh, you don't imagine it. And that's kind of what happened with, with the Billy thing. I just did not see that coming. And. Uh, I'm still blindsided by it. I'm still blown <laughs> away by it. And I get to look over every night, uh, watch him play a lot of his stuff on the piano when his piano is tilted the right way. And I, and I find myself just watching him play stuff and me realizing how poorly I play it. <laughs> you know? And then I go, and then I go, well, I really got to work on that. I see what he just did there. And I need to do that, you know? And, you know? So, but, so but, for me, it's not every night. Every night I'm hearing what I do wrong. I'm not hearing what I do right. And I'm, I, and I'm thankful that people hear, hear it in a right way and that they <laughs> think I'm doing it in the right way. But, uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, I consider myself a hack and I'm, just, I'm, thankful, I'm, I'm thankful to be where I'm at and, uh, and to be able to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, I, ne I never saw it coming like this. Episodes 156 to 167 were very different in that they were all recorded live on location at the massive NAM show in Anaheim, California. So it's hard to single out just one from all those. I did 23 interviews in four days. And with the exception of that last one, episode 167, when I interviewed Aileen Quinn, who had played the title character in the early 1980s movie Annie about the little orphan, all of those episodes contained interviews with two different guests instead of our usual approach of one featured guest per episode. But go back and check some of those out. The guests were even performing live, so we've got those on there too. Some cool guests that included the likes of Brian Scoggin, the drummer for Casting Crowns, Jordan Rudis, the keyboard player for Dream Theater, and Josh Logan, who had been on season five of The Voice and turned three chairs, eventually landing on Team Christina. Those episodes were all being done in the convention center at the massive Tascam booth. Another guest was singer-songwriter Jessica Lynn, who just did her Christmas show a couple weeks ago, and that performance was captured on the Tascam DA6400 multi-track recorder, which has been around for a year and a half or two years now. So they captured everything before the mix, 
They recorded the raw signal from every microphone in the room, 34 microphones in total, and the DA6400 was connected to the mixing board with one single coaxial cable. That unit is used by touring bands, theme parks, museums, and planetariums, and even houses of worship. Check out the various solutions for everyone from the home hobbyist up to the touring professional at Tascam.com. So continuing our run through the second 200 episodes of NHTE, Buck Johnson was the guest on episode 169. He just happens to be the keyboard player and a backing vocalist for a little band by the name of Aerosmith. By the way, that was one of his original songs, Country Rockin' and Reelin', that we were playing at the beginning of today's episode. And just like Mike Del Judas with Billy Joel, Buck Johnson's gig with Aerosmith is pretty much a fairy tale too. Buck, as I mentioned in the intro, you wrote Carlos Santana's Just Feel Better. That song featured Steven Tyler. Is that what laid the groundwork for you to now be playing keyboards and doing backing vocals with Aerosmith? Tell us that story of how you got this opportunity that you're in now. Actually, it had nothing to do with wow. it. And I, wow. I, didn't, I didn't even mention it to Steven that I wrote that song for the, wow. about the first month I was out on tour. I just... Uh, you know, I I was literally in Alabama visiting my mom for Mother's Day, and she still plays at a church, and she's <laughs> you know she's phenomenal. And uh, uh, so we're getting ready for church, and I get a call from Stephen from Istanbul, and the next day I'm going to play in Istanbul. But the connection there that got me the gig with those guys was uh, a mutual friend, a guy who um, a guy named Marty Fredrickson, who had worked with them, uh, co-wrote Jaded with Stephen, and pro- was a co-producer on, on some of the records, the later records records. And um, so, you know, Marty was uh, was very fortunate. I've known him for for several years. And, and like with anything, it's, you know, relationships, you know, people you've uh, you've networked with over the years. And, and, and Marty and I have never actually worked together before and um, until recently. But before then, we were just friends and he knew what I did. And, and he, obviously, knowing those guys as well as he does, he knew they needed somebody. And uh, I came in at the last minute. But uh, I didn't want to come across to Stephen like I was, uh, you know, saying, hey, man, I did this for you. You know, you yeah, know I wrote this yeah. song you sang on. And uh, so, you know, eventually word got around camp somehow and uh, he found out. And uh, it was pretty cool when he asked me to sing it in the dressing room and I grabbed the acoustic <laughs> and we sang it together. So that was that was oh, awesome. Wow. Obviously, uh, Marty giving the recommendation to those guys was a lot that got me on the plane to Istanbul. But I know that uh, I'm sure Marty sent them some video clips of me performing um, and some music of mine, and uh, just to get an idea of what kind of what kind of voice I have, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that he wanted to hear it. So, um, but you know, it wasn't until I got to Istanbul that, uh, by, at that point in time, by the time I got there, I hadn't slept in two days. Mm. Um, just uh, packing the night before and charting out songs because you know I'm I'm jumping right in, and uh, um, you know, on the plane, I'm I'm really you know just you know, woodshedding to make sure I'm ready and I mm-hmm. uh, get there and I meet Steven in uh, the dressing room at the venue. And, um, you know, we, uh, played through the songs. The first song we sang together and I'm playing acoustic was crying. 
and because uh, it has one of the higher harmony parts, and he wanted to make sure I could sing it and sing it full voice like a lead singer. That's the way he sang them on the records. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got through the end of the first chorus, and he stopped, and he just said, "Hey, man, where have you been?" And I'm like, "This is <laughs> this is too surreal. This is like a dream, you know? Am I really here? Because sleep deprived and hearing that from um, a legend like yeah, that was yeah. uh, unbelievable." Moving ahead to episode 174, I brought a guest into the studio mainly for his unorthodox story that I wanted to have be an inspiration to listeners who are up-and-comers that need to hear that anything is possible. This was musician Mark Ensign, who for 10 years played bass in the Tony Award-winning Broadway show Rent. In New Jersey, I was only about 25 minutes from the George Washington Bridge. I was really close, you know, as far as getting to say within an hour, I could be in front of any theater that I needed to be in front of. So uh, and and I think Broadway has the, had this this thing that it was it was a steady gig, uh, it paid really well and it was very prestigious. So it was something to run towards. It was this impossible goal that <laughs> I, I really knew I had no shot at getting. But you know why not? It, it seemed like if you're going to get a, a steady gig, this is probably the one. And uh, and if you remember when I started uh, in third grade, I, I started learning how to play uh, how to read bass clef. Uh, mm. I was really, I was a really, really strong reader. I could read pretty much anything. So Broadway fit like a glove for me. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, this is in, let's see, this was back in 96, 95, 96. And there was no, there really was no internet. There was a little bit of a, an America Online thing, but yeah. there wasn't really that much internet uh, um, or at least anything useful. Uh, like right now you can go and you can do a search and you can find out who plays in every show. Back then you couldn't do that. There wow. were, that information didn't exist online. So um, the second best uh, choice I had was to just drive into the city and I would go to every theater and I would um, ask the ushers for a playbill. If they wouldn't give me a playbill, <laughs> I would try to steal one. If they if I couldn't steal <laughs> one, I would wait until somebody got out of the show and didn't want it anymore and I would I would ask them for oh, it. And gosh. if I couldn't get it that way, one time I actually dug into the garbage and took one. Wow. So so I mean I was committed. <laughs> like I'll I was say. really I'll committed. Say. So over the course of a week or two, I had a stack of every playbill for every show that was on Broadway. And in that playbill was a list of the all the um bass players, guitar players, all the musicians, all the musical directors, the um, uh, you know, every, everybody involved on the music side of the, uh, you know, the contractors, everybody that was involved in, in, in the booking of musicians on that show was in that, uh, was in that playbill. So now I had all their names and I knew what they did. I just needed to contact them. And so I had this, uh, this idea that like, okay, well I'll join the union cause I got to be a member of the union anyway. I'll join the union. And then this way, when I join the union, they're going to give me a book of, uh, you know, a directory of all the people that are in the union. If and you're on a show, information. Yeah, if you're in a show, you're in the book because you're in the union. And so now I have your, um, your mailing address and your phone number. And, uh, so that's what I did. I went into the city, I went and joined the union. And, uh, however, because I didn't have a gig, they wouldn't let me join the union. There was like this weird catch 22 that at the time that if you want to be in the union, you have to have a gig. If you want to have a gig, you have to be a member of the union. So I, I, you know, I left there with no union card. Um, and so I came home, uh, went back into the city a couple days later with this brilliant idea. I, I brought a wire cutter with me, took the bus into the city. And at the bus station, I, 
um, I cut off, uh, I cut the chain of a phone book that was chained to uh, a phone booth at, at, the, at the time. And uh, this way I walked away with, with a phone book. I figured like most of the people probably live in Manhattan and I'd probably be able to get 50, 60 percent of the people uh, of all the names that I had, which I did, which was which was about on the money. And uh, and that's what I did. And so so I started calling people and I would send them resumes that I know that they didn't read. Like l- looking back now, I'm laughing because I would send people resumes. The rest of that story takes even more incredible twists and turns. So definitely make sure you go listen to the entire conversation with Mark Ensign on episode 174. And I should mention that all of these episodes that I'm referencing here on this episode, we will have links to all of them on the show page for episode 203. So any or all of the 12 episodes that we're playing clips from, you can hear those interviews in their entirety by going to the show page for episode 203 at nhte.net. Meanwhile, we move ahead another month to episode 178, which featured singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist Victoria Canal, who at the time was based in London and has since relocated to New York. Her independently released debut EP garnered over 2 million plays on Spotify and charted at number 6 on Billboard's Next Big Sound. But while it's old hat to her what needed to be noted, as if Mark Ensign's story wasn't inspirational enough, was the odds that Victoria has overcome. I was born with a condition called amniotic band syndrome, which basically uh, occurs um, one in every 1,200 births. And uh, it it just, uh, it's basically a fluid, amniotic fluid in uh, a mother's belly. That This is how I explain it to children. It's a, it's a, it's kind of like a thick water in, in a, in a mother's belly that stops a part of the body from growing. So in my in my case, it was uh, my uh, right arm. So I was born without half of my right arm and uh, basically have grown up hoping to simply live my life uh, as well and as strongly as I can, regardless of that, because ultimately it's not really a big deal. And um, in in doing that, I hope to uh, help others kind of do the same. with Because I think everybody kind of has their their missing arm. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but sometimes it's not so visible. Sometimes it's not just so apparent. It's something that you're battling with internally. Jumping ahead 10 more episodes up to number 188. My guest was producer, lecturer, author, mentor, and songwriter, Charlie Midnight, who has worked with everyone from Barbara Streisand to Hilary Duff, to the Doobie Brothers, to Cher, James Brown, Charlie Midnight has earned Grammy and Golden Globe nominations, and he has been involved in the writing, conceptualization, and production of albums throughout his career that have sold in excess of 50 million copies. And on episode 188, he gave a lot of advice and encouragement to up-and-coming performers, including a piece of wisdom that he derived from a Clint Eastwood movie. One of my favorite movies are called Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and um, um, Morgan Freeman. Um, and it comes from the, one of the almost the final scene in the film where, uh, where Clint, who's this grizzled gunfighter, um, comes back to avenge his friend who has been, um, uh, who has been killed by the sheriff, Little Bill. And Little Bill is played by Gene Hackman. And, uh, of course, 
you know, uh, it's it's raining out and it's 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 thundering, and and Clint walks into the to the saloon, and uh, where everybody and he basically, to make a long story short, he shoots little Bill, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman is lying on the floor, okay, and he looks up at Clint because Clint has a, his a rifle, a shotgun pointed at him. He's about to blow his head off, okay, for killing his friend Morgan Freeman, right? And um, and little Bill looks up at him and goes. Um, I don't deserve this. I was building a house. And Clint looks down at him and goes, deserves, got nothing to do with it. And he blows his head off. <laughs> I watch that moment. But that's basically my philosophy. You know, what does anybody deserve? That's right. And so deserve has nothing to do with it. You've got to go out there and, and get it and hopefully get somewhere where you can be satisfied with, with where you are in life. And our last clip to wrap up this best of episode features more storytelling, an amazing account from episode 196, Chad Cromwell, who plays drums on the Joe Walsh tour, talking about the first ever drum kit that he owned and the turn of events around it. That Gretsch kit I'd owned for, I don't know, about two years, almost three years. And I got, I saw this modern kit made by Rogers uh, at a music shop and completely just had you know had to have them <laughs> lost my mind you know I'll do anything I gotta do to get them <laughs> so I sold the Gretsch kit uh -oh. and I bought the, the Rogers kit right sold it to this guy and uh, bought the Rogers kit and within six months really was sure that I'd made the biggest mistake I could have oh, ever no. made and I started on a journey to try to recover that drum set, wow. that Gretsch kit. Wow. My first kit, I tried to get it back. Could not find the guy. Couldn't remember the guy's name. No I, kidding. You know, I just couldn't figure out how to track the guy down. Mm -hmm. And um, just thought, okay, well, I guess that's that. You know, I'm going to give up on that. And that's like, we're talking about 1970. Three, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. and uh, so last year, well, along the way, about every ten years or so, I would connect with this old, very dear old friend of mine, and that drum set would always come up in the conversation. <laughs> you know, and it would always be like, "Damn, I wish I had never gotten rid of those." <laughs> this guy was a high school mate of mine. Uh -huh. He was with me when I got him. You know, uh -huh. and uh, so it was just a thing we like to talk about, and. So last year in March, that friend of mine, my high school mate, passed away. Mm. And, uh, and uh, you know, which is a whole other story. Sad loss, very dear friend. And very shortly after that, um, I started talking about that that drum set again with my brother mm -hmm. and uh he said yeah you know he says oh yeah i remember we're just reminiscing with about my friend jay and, and all that and he goes oh yeah and he goes and so we talked about it for a few minutes and then he just said well i gotta I got go i gotta we got some old furniture we gotta find some guy to fix this stuff so all right talk to you later well a couple of days later my brother calls me back and he goes 
I need to talk to you. Can you call me? And I rang him up, and he said, uh, there was a guy that was just here. We got in the Yellow Pages, and um, there was a guy that was just here that does furniture restoration, uh, antique restoration. And uh, when the guy showed up, he noticed my last name, and uh, he said, "He said, by any chance, are you related to Chad Cromwell?" And I said, "And he said, yeah, that's my brother." Oh boy! And he went, "Well, I'm the guy that bought the Gretsch kit." Oh, <laughs> okay. oh man! So, yeah. So, so uh, he, Kyle, so my brother Kyle just says. This is this guy, you know, this is the guy. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to, I got to ask you. I said, did you guys talk about the kid? And he went, he still has. Oh, no. He still got. Oh, my gosh. And so, so I said, I said, I said, Kyle, I've got to talk to this guy. I have to talk to this guy. So he he made the arrangements for the, yeah. So he made the arrangements for the two of us to talk. I called the guy up. And I just said, I don't even know what to say to you, <laughs> other than, other than for forty something years I've been looking for those drums. And those listeners are the kinds of stories you can hear on Now Hear This Entertainment. Do go check out episode one ninety six so you can hear Chad Cromwell finish telling the rest of how that conversation went with that guy who had that original drum kit. Of course, I hope you'll check out other past episodes those that we've covered here on this Best of Episode 203, as well as others that were not. There have been so, so many great guests, some really fantastic stories on this show, and we're going to keep bringing them to you. So make sure you're subscribing to Now Hear This Entertainment. If you're an iPhone user, the Podcasts app is the way to most easily get the show. If you're on an Android, probably Stitcher Radio is the way to go. Subscribe on there. At our show website, nhte.net, there are icons to click on to also get the show from Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and TuneIn Radio. You can also just listen to the show right at nhte.net. Please consider leaving a rating and review, hopefully of the five-star variety, on iTunes or Stitcher. Emails can be sent to podcast at nhte.net. Thank you ever so much for listening, not only to today's best of episode 203, but those who listen week in and week out. It really, really does mean a lot to me and keep me going. We are now up to 132 countries around the world where Now Hear This Entertainment has gotten listeners from. Really, really amazing. Thank you. And with that, I will talk to you again next week on another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. Meanwhile, we'll send you out with a song from one of the guests talked about here on episode 203. As promised, this is a tune from Brielle Von Hugel. It's called Naked. I used to cover up. I was afraid. Afraid that I'd be stuck with these mistakes I've made. And show the world who I really was. So I just went along and fell out of touch. You picked me up and I let you in, stripped all my. 